1972, the U.S. Army became an all-volunteer army. In order to recruit the personnel that they needed, they generated a variety of slogans and commercials. And we're going to start this morning by watching one of those. And the clip that you're going to see was uh, first aired in 1986. before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Hey, First Sergeant. Good morning. You can do it in the Army. ...to sign up. <laughs> I mean, after all, it's a catchy phrase. Be all that you can be. What could be more than to go with some outfit that would ask you to do that? Secondly, it's a catchy tune. And I hope that that tune actually may go with you through the week. Be all that you can be. Okay? And then they show those heartwarming scenes of army life. <laughs> all right. Now, the slogan and the ads were very successful in bringing young men and women into the army. There was one catch, though. The people already serving in the army didn't always recognize the army being described. And so that had some downward uh, effects on morale. But the slogan is still great. Be all that you can be. That's something that we should all strive for. I believe the author of Hebrews would have been happy to have that as the slogan for the book of Hebrews. I think Jesus would concur. In uh, Mark 12, 30, Jesus said, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Oh, we should be all in all the time. The author of Hebrews wanted the Hebrew Christians and us to be all that we can be, and to live the Christian life by faith to the fullest. No mediocrity expected. Now, Hebrews contains five warnings to the Hebrew Christians to encourage them to stay the course and keep walking by faith and not revert to the ritualism of Judaism. The book emphasizes the superiority of Christ to the priestly system that they were tempted to return to. Now, the book gives five warnings or five admonitions, and they're not identical, but I would like to suggest that there are really five versions on the same theme. Be all that you can be. The passage that we're going to look at today, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 29, contains the fifth warning. I will be reading from the ESV, and uh, if uh, that bothers you, then you can just look on the screen, because I have most scriptures on the screen. But we'll spend most of our time in the book of Hebrews. 
But to begin with, I would like to review the four previous warnings that the author gives so that they will be fresh on our minds. I'm not going to give an exhaustive review. Uh, if you want more than I share today, I would refer to you to the messages that are posted on our web page. But let's look at those warnings briefly. Warning number one is found in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 to 2, ver chapter 2, verse 4. Heed God's word and don't drift from it. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3a, it says, For this reason, and the reason he's talking about is the superiority of Christ. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every violation and act of disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The admonition to Christians is to encourage us to pay close attention to the salvation that we have received as a gift from God through Jesus Christ. The Hebrews were tempted to drift away and return to the ritualism of Judaism. But the message of salvation has been communicated to us through Christ himself. It was confirmed by the apostles and the disciples. It was testified to by God through signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation came at a great cost and is eternally secure. Why would we neglect so great a salvation? I looked up the word neglect. And neglect means to fail to care for properly. Fail to care for properly. Our salvation came at great cost, but it's free to us. But we must work at it. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul calls, calls us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, not work for. We cannot earn our salvation. That is a free gift of God. Paul is telling us to strive to bring salvation to the complete fulfillment in our lives, to walk worthy of our calling. So, the call is for us. Be all in. Immerse ourselves in his word and not to drift from it. In each of the five warnings in Hebrews, I believe that there's a warning to the unbeliever also. <clears throat> Excuse me. The warning to the unbeliever is that there is salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ. To neglect his way of salvation and try to go some other way will result in great loss and eternal separation from God. Warning number two, Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Don't doubt God's word. Beginning at verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, Take care, brothers and sisters. Note, this is written to Christians. That there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day, as long as it's still called day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end. 
having trusted God for salvation, there should be no long-term unbelief or doubt residing within us. If there is, we need to deal with it. Because that unbelief will result in a hardening of the heart. Rejecting Christ and his commands will move us away from God. And that is an awful position for a believer to be in. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. The exhortation for us as believers, don't let that happen. Don't let sin creep in and block that relationship with God. Encourage one another. Discourage the temptation to return to the, in the case of the Hebrews, the ineffective Levitical system or some other religious system. Holding fast until the end is the sign of the true believer. For the unbeliever, remaining in a position of unbelief will ultimately result in permanent separation from God. Warning number three, found in Hebrews 5, starting with verse 11, going to 6.12. Do not depart from God's word. Beginning at verse 11 of chapter 5, it says, You have become dull of hearing. For those by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go to maturity. A person becomes dull of hearing as you become inattentive to the word of God. When we're inattentive to the word of God, it's easy to set it aside and to not give it our full attention. But the author admonishes us to not become dull of hearing, to move on to maturity, the place we should be spiritually. Now, it's inappropriate to give a grilled steak to a baby. Even though steak is a good source of protein, that baby has no ability to get that steak into its system and to metabolize it. As inappropriate as it is to give a steak to a baby, it is equally inappropriate to give formula to an adult. There should be no need for it. An adult should be able to handle the steak that the infant cannot. Spiritually, it is inappropriate for a Christian of many years to be unskilled in the word. A Christian of many years should no longer be in need of simple food. The mature Christian should hone his or her skills of discernment through constant practice. The warning to the Hebrew Christians and to us is move on to maturity. Know the word. Understand it and act upon it. Now, unbelievers cannot attain spiritual maturity 
because they're spiritually dead. The author warns them that uh, merely hanging around Christians, observing the good things they do, and enjoying the good things that believers possess does not equal salvation. Salvation is only by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and nothing that we do. Warning number four. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39, don't despise the word of God and reject Christ. In this passage, we're admonished to draw near to God, approach God confidently, get the right button here, hold fast to our hope, encourage one another, and assemble together. We can approach God as Christians confidently because of the relationship we have with him through the work of Christ on the cross. And our hope is anchored securely in him. With his help, we should be, able, we should be doing the things that are on this list. Not doing them really is rejecting Christ because this is what Christ has asked us to do. Why would we turn away from all of this that's available to us and put our trust and effort in anything else? Now, the unbeliever has no, has no confidence to approach God on his own. He has no merit of his own. He has no hope for the future in the absence of a relationship with Christ. Well, that brings us to warning number five and the passage for today. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 29. And the warning here is don't reject or don't refuse God's word. As we begin consideration of this passage, let me remind ourselves of the context that it comes in. We've just finished chapter 11, the hall of faith where the author reminds the Hebrew Christians and us of many who had lived the life of faith successfully, enough to be included in the list in chapter 11. Now, these people did not have easy lives, but they walked through that life with God's help in a manner that was pleasing to him. We come to the beginning of, of chapter 12, the author implores, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Laying our sins and weights aside is only possible if our focus is on Christ. The author also encourages us to persevere with whatever life brings our way. It says it is for discipline that God disciplines those that he loves. Well, with that as a background, then, what should our lives look like? Well, the last part of this chapter gives us some answers to that. So let's look at the first section, and that's uh, verses 12 to 17 in chapter 12. This is a call to holiness, call to the believer to holiness. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that whatever is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. First of all, here the author calls us to spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal. He describes the Hebrews as having drooping, drooping hands and weak knees, a condition of spiritual weakness and something that must be dealt with. Now, to deal with that, we first of all must recognize that we are weak and that we do need help. But how can we lift our drooping hands and weak knees? Not something that we can do on our own. Isaiah 40, verses 30 to 31 says, Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, to wait on the Lord does not mean that we sit around idly and do nothing. Rather, waiting on the Lord should be actively looking to God for all that we need. Warren Wisby says it this way, and I like this. Waiting on God, he says, This involves meditating on his character and his promises, praying and seeking to glorify him. Waiting on the Lord is active. It is not passive. And it involves meditating on his character and his promises, praying and seeking to glorify him. In this passage, I really like the imagery of the uh, soaring eagle. Eagles have the ability to ride the air currents and remain aloft with a minimal amount of effort. Something other than their own efforts keep them up in the air. And as the wind provides the lift required for the eagle, God provides the strength we need in our time of need. Secondly, the author calls on us to make our paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Our focus should be straight on the Lord. We should fully trust him. We should put away our imperfect understanding and acknowledge him as the source of all strength. Then we can claim the prophet, the, the, excuse me, the promise, and he will do it. He will make our paths straight. Now to walk the straight paths, though, requires a great familiarity with the word. 
Once our path is straight, we still need the illumination of the word to stay on the path. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As we immerse ourselves in the word, we will be able to navigate the path that God has laid out for us. Third, strive for peace with everyone. In Romans 12, 18, Paul puts it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable, peaceably with all. Now, we cannot control what others do. We can only control what we do in this area. And so we should strive. We should work really hard to live at peace with all men. It's not an easy task. We all encounter difficult people day by day. But that is what God asks of us. Fourth, he calls us to holiness. The word holiness means the process of making or becoming holy. To be set aside, sanctified, consecrated. Some translations use the word sanctification in this verse. And sanctification is the process of being progressively transformed by the Lord into his likeness. I like that definition. Process of being progressively transformed by the Lord into his likeness. Our practical holiness is something that should be on display day by day. It can be measured by our obedience to the call of Christ on our lives. We should look more and more like Christ day by day as we submit our will to his. Now, our practical holiness that shows does not save us. It confirms outwardly what is true inwardly. Fifth, he calls us to obtain the grace of God. <clears throat> Specifically, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In the absolute sense, if we do not obtain the grace of God, we're lost in sin. And sin condemns us before God. We obtain the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on the cross. So what does it mean then for a Christian to fail to obtain the grace of God? Well, I believe that it's the failure to appropriate the grace of God on a daily basis. Now, it's not that we're being saved daily. Being saved is a one-time event when we come and we confess our sin to Christ and we ask him to come into our lives. But it is expressing a dependence on God to live a life pleasing to him. Now, what keeps us from attaining the grace of God? Well, the author lists bitterness. He says, by which many are defiled. It's not enough if you're bitter. It spreads to others around us. Sexual immorality of all kinds. Unholiness and disdain for our eternal inheritance as exemplified by Esau. 
Esau also demonstrated that not obtaining the grace of God can also have long-term consequences in our lives. There are some things that simply cannot be undone here on earth. Failing to appropriate the grace of God on a daily basis will not cause us to lose our salvation, but it will destroy our close relationship with God, and it will result in loss of reward. The author calls on us to walk in a manner pleasing to God and by the grace of God. The second section in uh, this passage uh, is a contrast of two mountains. And we will look at uh, this section first, verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verses 18 to 21 of this chapter describe the events that happened at Mount Sinai as God was preparing to meet Israel and give them the Ten Commandments. Israel was commanded by God to approach the mountain, but not to come up on the mountain. And any person or animal that came up on the mountain was to be stoned. The mountain was not to be trod upon. Now, Mount Sinai wasn't very welcoming anyway. It was ablaze. It was shrouded in darkness, wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. There was thunder and lightning and the whole mountain trembled. The people and Moses trembled before Mount Sinai in fear. Sinai was to be a reminder to Israel of the law. The law was given to point out sin and not a means of salvation for sin. It's not the law that the believer should be focusing on. It's as if the author here is saying, have you forgotten where your salvation really comes from? The next section in here deals with the other mountain. Beginning at verse 22, it says, But you've come to Mount Sinai and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering." and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. <clears throat> the focus of the believer should not be on Mount Sinai, the law. The focus of the believer should be on Mount Zion. Now, the Mount Zion that described here is not the hill that's outside the wall of the city of Jerusalem. Rather, it is the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. It is not a city that can be touched by man, as is Mount Sinai. So who are the residents of Mount Zion? Well, first and foremost, God is there. And the passage tells us that God is and will be 
the judge of all. There are angels there. In fact, he says there's myriads of them. There's the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, these are the members of the church, true believers who have died since Pentecost. They're presently enjoying the present of our Lord, but they're waiting for his return to establish the kingdom. The spirits of the righteous made perfect are also there. These are the Old Testament saints who were justified by faith, as we saw in chapter 11. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus, the, medita the, the mediator of the new covenant, is also there. Christ secured the new covenant by being obedient to his Father, and he went to the cross and conquered death for all who believe. Now, it's interesting that here on Mount Zion, there's both the old, or the, med the mediator of the old and the new uh, covenants are both present. Moses is there as well. Now, Moses received the law, and he acted as a mediator between God and man. His place in heaven, though, is secured by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's in heaven by faith in God, and the righteousness he has is imputed to him by God. In contrast, the mediator of New, New Testament, the new covenant, excuse me, Jesus, is God. The passage also tells us that the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel is also present on Mount Zion. I think this refers to the superiority and the efficiency to save of the blood of Christ. If we compare the blood that was shed when Abel offered the lamb to that of Christ, we see that Christ's blood is far superior. His blood was shed one time for all time to take away the sin of the world. The offering that Abel brought could only temporarily cover sin. Also, now the blood that Abel shed when he was murdered by Cain cries to us for vengeance. In contrast, Christ's blood that he shed on the cross extends salvation to all who believe. Christ's blood and sacrifice is superior. Now, we're not there yet. We haven't made it to Mount Zion yet. But positionally, we are seated in heaven if we have Jesus as our personal Savior. We have nothing that we do or say will enhance or detract from that fact. But the author points to Mount Zion as a fact, as a reminder of the fact that we have a place reserved for us. He calls us to maintain our focus on Christ and his sacrifice for sin. So we can say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He 
your eye on Mount Zion. Our inheritance there was secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's imperishable. It's there right now waiting for us. It is undefiled and, and fading. And it says it is kept in heaven for us. It is there waiting for our coming to claim it. The last section of the chapter uh, calls, uh, speaks about the unshaken kingdom. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This passage contrasts that which can be shaken and that which cannot. The admonition and warning to us comes as we are told not to refuse or to reject him who is speaking, namely God. Those at Mount Sinai heard the voice of God. They could not endure what they heard. They begged that no further messages be given to them. They promised to keep the word of God as it had been presented to them, but they did not. All of them, 20 years old and up, except for Joshua and Caleb, did not enter the promised land. So if those who heard God then did not escape, how will we if we reject him who warns from heaven? When God met Israel at Mount Sinai, he shook the ground and the people trembled. God promises to return and shake both earth and heaven. In 2 Peter 3.10, he describes it this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That which is created will be shaken and destroyed. Only that which cannot be shaken will remain. In the new covenant, God offers us those things which are truly everlasting, which cannot and will not be swept away with the rest of the world and universe. But we need not fear that day. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. It says that we were sealed in him, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's the down payment, if you will, on our inheritance. 
It's assured. It's present in heaven waiting for us. So what should our response be? Well, the author of uh, this chapter of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Two things we're asked to do. One is to be grateful. Be grateful that our inheritance cannot be shaken. It is assured by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then secondly, we're to offer our worship. And our worship should be framed with reverence. With reverence, deep respect for whom it is we are worshiping. And then awe. Now, awe, awe is an emotion that combines dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by God. Now, the unbeliever should know and should be aware of the fact that God is a consuming fire. To stand before him without a personal relationship with Christ is impossible. And judgment is assured. The author has made a strong case for us to examine our lives and to not refuse or reject his word. Our goal must be to know his word, to heed it, to be all in all the time to please him. So as you leave here today, I would implore you to be all that you can be. Let's pray. Father, it is a high calling to which you've called us. Something, Father, that we cannot do on our own. And Father, I pray that as we walk through this week, we will walk with your help in a manner, Father, that you would find pleasing. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.